we do thank you that this, this truth that we just sang, that our sin was born by Christ. And Lord, it's you alone that can give us rest. And I, I pray that you would forgive us of all the times we try to find that, that rest and that hope in, in other people or other things. And Lord, I pray that in this time, as we study your word, that you would give us a glimpse of that rest as we, as we sit, Lord, that we have a calm that comes from your spirit. And this is, this is what we were made to do, is to walk with you. And so, Lord, as we walk in it, I, I pray that you would, you would put us at ease to allow us to hear from you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, at risk of sounding like an old curmudgeon, when I was a kid, road trips provided no entertainment except was out that which was outside the window. The last summer, my family had the opportunity to travel through many parts of the country, parts of the Rocky Mountains I had never driven through, the American West, landscapes I had only seen in pictures, driving by wild Mustangs, the plains of Utah and New Mexico. I was marveling at these things, having read about the settling of this land, the, the, the wars with the Navajo, the, the, the caravans of, of settlers and explorers and cavalry who had come by this way. And maybe you can relate to what I'm about to describe. I'm driving through the mountains. I'm driving past landscapes I've only heard about or seen pictures of. And I am in awe and I'm trying to strike a balance between taking in the beauty and keeping us on the road. All the while, my children are watching some Pixar movie for the 23rd time as though it's more valuable and precious and beautiful than everything that is going on around us. Maybe you can relate to that as a, maybe someone who has moments of curmudgeonness yourself. And that is a word as long as you don't look it up. The problem wasn't the lack of intrigue and beauty outside driving my children to see Lego Batman for the 57th time. The problem, and they will disagree with me on this, is that they were confused as to what was ultimately precious, ultimately important, and truly beautiful. And in their confusion, in their disbelief that something outside was truly great, in their confusion, they were distracted and they missed some spectacular things. In the passage we're coming to today, we're going we're gonna to find Jesus being approached by a few different groups that are confused as to what is truly beautiful, and they are skeptical that he would offer something more precious than they had already found. Now, 
I use the word skeptical very carefully here because there's two types of skepticism. One is a very honest and sincere form of skepticism. It is a skepticism that is searching. It is a skepticism that knows its own limitations. It is a skepticism that is willing to ask hard questions knowing that if truth is out there, truth will rise past the difficult questions and still stand. That is a sincere skepticism. The skepticism Jesus is facing is very dishonest. It is very antagonistic. It is claiming to have all the answers in and of itself, that it is always right. It is misguided and a confused form of skepticism. And the questions that are brought, as we're about to read in Mark 12, reveal that they were confused about the kingdom of God in such a way that they were distracted from that which is truly beautiful, that which is truly good. They allowed significant worldly concerns to guide them more than the word of God. They were building a version of the kingdom of God that suited their priorities and their opinions and, and left their opinions unchallenged. And in so doing, they missed the actual kingdom of God, which is far superior in glory and power than anything any of us, either alone or collectively, are capable of dreaming up and trying to live out on our own. So let's look at their, their misguided, their confusion, their skepticism, and let's look at Jesus' answers to it. Starting in Mark 12, verse 13, they pick up on all of our favorite topic, taxes. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, and if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. First took a wife. When he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, Whose wife will she be? For the seventh had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? 
because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Those aren't the words you want to hear from Jesus, in case you were wondering where this is going. I want us to see this morning that when we are distracted and deceived by significant worldly concerns, we miss out on what the Lord desires and gives. First of all, that the Lord has ultimate authority and desires honor. The Lord has ultimate authority and desires honor. As we look at this issue about taxes and giving to Caesar what's Caesar's and God what's God, I want to point out there's two, two major issues and two significant dynamics that I want us to see in this conversation. The first issue is that they are trying to pull Jesus into a political debate. And this is nothing but an attempted setup. That's all this is. They're trying, Jesus is the one true Savior of the world, and those who are worldly, no matter their ideology, will have great difficulty with him. And so they come with flatter, flattery, which reeks of insincerity, but it does not disguise their intent. And they applaud Jesus for not being concerned with appearances, which is true. But they did this while being upset that he was not concerned with their appearance and honoring them in the way that they felt they deserved. And this seems like a pretty simple question, maybe a little bit odd. But what's interesting here is who is asking the questions. It is the Pharisees and the Herodians. These, for the Jewish people, are the two-party system. One, the Pharisees, believing that this is our land given to us by our God and any other government factor is not worthy and we should despise them and not honor them in any way, shape, or form. And then you have the Herodians, who are the Jews saying, well, this, this is it. Let's, let's just embrace it. Let's join it. Let's become part of the system. And so you have a very anti-government, Roman government, and a very pro-Roman government group who are coming together on the issue of taxes, which was the issue why should we honor him? He's not our king. He's not on the throne of David. What's interesting here is they weren't coming in their disagreement to seek clarity, saying, Jesus, boy, we can't come together on this. Can you help us understand that? That wasn't it at all. This was a pure trap so that if Jesus came and said, you know what? Pulls out his don't tread on me flag, starts waving it around, it says, we're not paying taxes to anyone. Get them out of here. Then the, the Herodians would have jumped all over him. 
And had he come and said, you know what, we need to do what Jeremiah said and seek the welfare of the city. Our forefathers broke the covenant of God and thus we are occupied by the Roman government because we're still not keeping these covenants. We're still not walking with God and a greater, newer covenant is coming. And so we shouldn't be concerned with earthly kingdoms but the heavenly kingdom. Then the Pharisees would have jumped all over them. It was a setup from the get-go. They both wanted to pull Jesus into their debate. Which would not have elevated their politics, but lowered Christ himself. Jesus wisely and masterfully not only avoids their trap, but he brings truth to show that both sides of this polarized issue are doing it wrong. That both of them are missing the point. He addresses those who are deeply religious and deeply political and points out to them that they've made an earthly issue into such a big deal that it's affected their spiritual well-being and they've neglected the spiritual work that God has called all of them to do. So they're trying, the one issue is they're trying to pull Jesus into a political debate. The second issue is that they are consumed with keeping what is mine. Now, when we talk about taxes, keeping what is mine, is, it's easy for us to think this is all about the financial part, but it's actually about the power and the influence. And as believers, we ought to be careful and be aware of those who will add religious language to their views in order to drum up support, but do not demonstrate the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Let me say that again. As believers, we need to be aware of those who will use religious language to drum up support for their stance and their platform, but do not demonstrate the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And when we dig into that, when that's happening, I think what we find is the name of our Lord God is being taken in vain. So they are consumed with what is theirs, is this issue, but what they really need to be consumed on is what is God's. And this is where Jesus confronts the selfish hierarchy of both. They're concerned with honoring themselves. Because if Jesus says, pay taxes, then the Herodians get to be right, but the Pharisees get to come after Jesus. And if he says, don't pay taxes, then the Pharisees get to be right, and the Herodians get to come after Jesus. It's a win-win for them. But what Jesus does is he goes, well, whose face is on it? He goes back to like kindergarten rules. That's my seat. I don't see your name on it. And Jesus is like, that's a pretty good logic. Whose face is on it? Caesar's. Better give it back to him. He could probably use a few more pictures of himself. Because the earthly money does not mean nearly as much to Jesus as it means to them. The earthly money does not mean nearly as much to Jesus as it means to them. So he goes, well, I'll give it back to Caesar. And then you should also know that that which has the likeness of God, you should give to God. Now Jesus isn't saying go and find all the graven images of God. 
but he's pointing out biblical truth that we as humanity are made in God's likeness. And so in the same way that we should give to Caesar what's Caesar's, we should give to God that which bears his likeness. And that has to start with us. I need to give God myself because I bear his likeness, I belong to him. And then I need to start looking around me. Do I see anyone around me who also bears God's likeness? Should I not seek to render them to the Lord? Jesus clears up this confusion in such a way that it takes the view of taxes and concern for covenant government and it makes it completely secondary to that which is primary the worship of God. He puts the kingdom priority exactly where it belongs. So now we have, those are our two issues, the political debate, trying to keep what's mine, knowing we need to give to God what's his. Now let's look at a couple dynamics here. One, Jesus unites those who the world divides. Here we see a twisted unity where the Herodians and the Pharisees are like, well, this is the one thing we can get along on. We both don't like Jesus, so let's Let's, you know, the common enemy, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. But Jesus gives a greater unity than that. Let's think in our minds. Who was watching this conversation? The disciples were. And within the 12 disciples existed Herodians and Pharisees. We don't call them that. We call them Matthew, the tax collector, who was fully bought into the system, making a livelihood from collecting taxes for the Roman Empire, and in so doing, ripping off his own countrymen. And we have Simon, the zealot, who, like the Pharisees, also had a don't tread on me flag. This is our land, this is our country. We should be our own pocket of Israel. Let the Romans have everything else. And Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector were brought together, not because they both immediately said, oh, taxes should work such and such way, but because they both came together because of the glory and power and beauty of Christ. And this is the glorious thing about Christ. Is that the body of Christ is full of those who apart from Christ would never agree with each other. And the unity we have in Christ and the commonality we have in Christ far surpasses and outweighs anything the world could drum up for a division. Jesus unites those who the world divides and we need to move, here's the other dynamic, we need to move from marveling to worship. Jesus says this, render to Caesar's what is Caesar, and give God that which is made in his likeness. And they marvel at him. And marveling is great. It's great to go, wow, that's amazing. I don't know what we can do about this. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I'm completely stumped. It's great to do that. It's great when you're going through the Rocky Mountains to marvel at the mountains. But you would never worship the mountains. 
We need to not be satisfied with marveling at Jesus, but to worship him, to give ourselves, to render to the Lord that which is made in his likeness. To have a Romans 12 kind of worship where we become these living sacrifices to the Lord. Use me how you will as a spiritual act of worship. Do you ever find yourself making the same mistake where you're very content to come to church, to sing songs that stir your affections for the Lord, to maybe hear in adult Bible fellowship some great truths from Scripture poured out, and you go, oh, that's amazing. But you never really give yourself to the Lord. What is holding you back? What would... What would cause you to, to be unwilling to give part of your life to the Lord? What are you unwilling to yield to the Lord? Is it your future? Is it Maybe it's not the image of Caesar. Maybe it's the image of Benjamin Franklin. Is it your children? that you're unwilling to really give to the Lord for Him to do His will in their lives and through them, for them to take on a Romans 12 worship? Is there part of you where you say, Jesus can have all of me except... Like, oh, would that the Lord remove our exceptions. And receive the full honor he is due from our lives. So they were distracted in such a way that they did not see the Lord's ultimate authority and his desire for honor. And then the Sadducees, this next group, they missed that the Lord generously gives powerfully transformed eternal life. The Lord generously gives powerfully transformed eternal life. So the Sadducees come, and they have a question for Jesus about something, an event, they don't even believe will happen. And they're essentially, they, they've worked up what they think is just this doozy of a question. The Sadducees, they really only read Moses' writings. They didn't count the rest of the Old Testament as being, like, really sound it was like someone who has a favorite version of the Bible and they just won't move past it when we all know that the ESV is what you need. <laughs> they would only read Moses. So they find this quandary in Moses as the ultimate authority and they come with this question with the full hope that Jesus will go, well, shucks, guys, I don't know what to do about that. This group had a filter through which they read the Bible. And it was a significantly more narrow filter than what Scripture itself gives us. And we need to be careful of the lens we read the Bible through. Because sometimes we'll put a lens on Scripture that's more narrow than Scripture itself. And so we add rules to salvation. To be saved, you must also, you know, dress this certain way and, you know, only play cards, card games like Rook that don't have jacks in them weird stuff we used to do as Christians. 
but we need to be careful of the lens we use to read Scripture. That we not come to the Bible to educate the Bible, but that we come to the Bible to be fully shaped by God, by His Spirit. And so they come, and they, they come with this approach where they confuse eternal life with earthly life. And they look at lifelong as being eternal lifelong. And that creates some problems. There are things we will always have in this world that we will not have in heaven. And that is really good news. But there are so many times where our culture has educated us to have a a particularly earthly view of heaven. Where it is essentially your favorite vacation with only the people you like and all of your pets with a little twist of Dr. Doolittle. I'm not wrong. This is the heaven our culture looks for. And this is the heaven that too many Christians think awaits them. And it is an unbelievably low view of heaven. And it is a view of heaven that does not have Christ himself at the center of it, which is a very big problem when we look at Scripture. Heaven is not going to be an idealized version of here. It will be wonderfully different and in many ways unimaginable. But here they look at marriage because marriage is a lifelong covenant. Divorce was a lot harder to come by, especially in the Sadducees. But lifelong is not eternal lifelong. And that statement is really good news for anyone who has to wrestle with the word terminal. For anyone who just feels their life falling apart, to know that there's going to come a day where all of this is going to be made new. And Jesus tells them, he's like, look, in in the resurrection, you're not going to be given in marriage. You're going to be like the angels in heaven. You're going to be glorified. You're going to be sinless. You're going to be serving the Lord. You're going to be enjoying the benefits of God and worshiping him in full purity. And he makes, Jesus points out two big errors in them. You don't know the power of the resurrection. You don't know the transformation. Paul tells us that we wait for these new heavenly bodies that will be given by the same power that Jesus uses to rule the whole world and subject all things to himself. And that power is going to renew and make you new and give you a new heavenly body that is far surpassing what you have now. In addition to that, we're going to be in a place where there's no more sin I was reading a book, The Explicit Gospel, years ago, and they talk about this like really big view of sin and redemption, and he just asks this simple question, or, or no, he makes an observation, that's what it is. He goes, you've never seen a sunrise without sin tainting your view of that sunrise. Think about that. You've never had a glorious meal As we're entering the season of Thanksgiving, you've never had a glorious meal without sin tainting that. And now think of having this relationships and worship without sin, of being gone with your grief and your ailments, 
and your separation from God. And then he talk, not only talks about the power, he talks about the present living. He answers them according to the part of the Bible they read. Look, when God appeared to Moses, what did he say? He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Jacob, I was the God of Isaac. He says, I am the God of them. Because they are resurrected. They're experiencing eternal life. This is so much more than escaping hell and judgment. The judgment of God for our sin, which we deserve. This is about the Lord adopting us into his family, making us co-heirs with Christ, bringing us home, giving us status, giving us a room, giving us a family, and a seat at the table, and so much more. There's so much noise vying for my attention. There's so much distracting us from that which God would give us and that which God would want to accomplish in the already aspect of the kingdom of God while we wait for the not yet. Would we? Would we be confused about the kingdom of God because of matters of this world and matters of this time? that people just get so enraged over? Or would we see through that to the glory of God that's due his name? And would we get distracted and confused and miss out because we don't have faith in the power of God or because the issues of the resurrection are just so far beyond? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can perceive that what the Lord has in store for so may we press on, blocking out that noise and looking at what the Lord has and what the Lord has provided. Let's pray as the worship team comes forward. Father God, you are mighty, you are holy, you are infinitely good, and we, we praise you and we ask for you to help us to see you more clearly. Help us to know Help us to Help us to press on to that which we have not yet grabbed hold of, but you have made available. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.